A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, listener. As you know, we are in the habit of doing a London-based quotation at the beginning of each episode. I have one man from Hertfordshire and one man from Elephant and Castle with me. Can ye o'er fray France? Can ye doon by London? <laughs> Saw ye Geordie Welps and his bonny woman? Were ye at the place called the Kittle Hoosie? Saw ye Geordie's grace riding on a goosey? The hell is that? I'd keep the game for night. Go on. Do it, Come here, Frey France. Come here, Dune by London. So you're Jody Welps and his bonny woman. Were you at the place, Cattle Kitty Hoosie? So you're Jody's grace slided on a goosey. From a Jacobite song alluding to George I's fondness for visiting brothels. <clears throat> uh, emails of complaint, please, to info at londonistoutloud.com. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnham and Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knuckles. have got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> so we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it's my culture or anything. <laughs> No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. Quite a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, December the 7th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, later on, we'll be finding out what two judges, three nuns, and a monk have been doing in the past week's news. Uh, with me here at the Horniman Museum in Forest Hill in South London, Paolo Viscardi. He's the Deputy Keeper of Natural History here at the Horniman. Uh, he helps to keep a blog and runs a biology Q&A site on the side. He also handles uh, geology, osteology, paleontology collections, as well as overseeing uh, an aquarium down in the basement and uh, all sorts of other things we'll be talking to him about the Horniman and, of course, the Horniman Walrus. Jeff Marshall is the former holder of the record for visiting all the tube stations in one day. We did all stations in 16 minutes, 43 seconds, uh, which was uh, 14 minutes shy of the record, he says. 16 minutes, 16 hours. (laughs) 
16, <laughs> 16 <laughs> hours. <laughs> that didn't sound very realistic. Yeah. <laughs> that would be incredible. Well, you heard it here first. Just over a quarter of an hour to visit all the tube stations. He's also a London blogger and an independent freelance video and filmmaker who excels with event pieces, news items, corporate DVD productions and website videos. He's also got some watches if you want to buy one. <laughs> Hello, Jeff and Paolo. Hello, how are you? Good morning. A pleasure to be here again. Well, in fact, you, when you say, uh, again, your last visit to the Horniman was, in fact, when you were, what, 10 years old? I, I'm older than I looked. I'm just turned 48. It would have been in the 1980s. And we used to live in West Croydon. And my mum, hello, mum, said, come on, son, it's Saturday. And she promised me sort of animals and, and a forest hill. And being a 10-year-old kid, for some reason, I got into my head that we were going to visit a big swamp with dinosaurs. And instead, there was just lots of bones. <laughs> and so I think my mum bought me like a plastic dinosaur the week later to kind of make up for my actual lack of seeing a real dinosaur. We've come through the Natural History Hall, I guess you'd call it, and there's clearly a, a gallery up above it with lots more exhibits that we haven't yet seen. Of course, the most striking exhibit as you come into the Horniman Museum, as anyone will know who's been here, is the walrus, the Horniman walrus. Everyone loves the Horniman walrus. He's massive. He's brilliant. Gotta love him, he's from Canada. What, what can we say about uh, the walrus apart from that it's larger than life size? Um, he's, he's an interesting specimen. He's, he's a fairly young male, um, which we know because we've got some information about where he's collected from. He's collected by a guy called Hubbard. Um, and we know that when he was stuffed, the taxidermist had never seen a walrus before. So um, he, he's remarkably um, rotund, is probably the best way to describe him. He's, he's a, bit, a bit bigger than he should be. Um, it, it looks like the taxidermist has seen a seal and thought, this looks a bit like a seal. Let's just keep stuffing him until he looks like a seal. Nice tight skin, you know, slipping around in the water like a, a graceful, elegant ballerina, uh, rather than a big lumbering creature with big folds of, of skin, um, which it uses as armour when it's fighting. So not quite the same thing. <laughs> around the walrus, there are a plethora of other creatures. Shortly we'll be doing a, a bit of a tour of some of them. What sort of thing are you particularly looking forward to? showing us power. The trouble is, there is no one thing which is more interesting than something else. It's just a case of what you find interesting. So for me, um, I have lots of different sorts of interests. So I'm interested in osteology. I like bones. So anything which is skeletal, I'm fascinated by. We've got great ape skeletons um, along the side next to the walrus, and I find them absolutely fascinating because you can see direct analogues with kind of human morphology, very, very similar in, in structure. I love, I love this place. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And that comes through. It sounds as though there might be some consolation for the uh, the, the childhood disappointment here, Jeff. Well, it's, I, I'm only here, as I say, briefly uh, today for the podcast. But or just you know, when I came in the entrance just now, I'm, I'm thinking I should email my mum at the weekend and say, "How about I take you back to the museum and we could sort of do it in reverse? That would be nice, wouldn't it?" So I think a, a trip back is on the cards. I feel like I've done a lovely family service already. <laughs> so you're you're making our family bond. So it, you're, it's like a social service you're providing. Yes, I've always thought so. Um, what, what about the building itself? Because it's quite an imposing. Structure. I didn't really know what to expect when I came here, but there's a whacking great big clock tower, big square thing. Uh, has this building always been a museum, or was it uh, something else previously? Yeah, no, it was um, custom made as a, a museum. It was um, designed and built by, by Charles Townsend, I think it was, um, and it was actually built because Horniman, uh, Horniman's wife, um, he, Horniman, Frederick Horniman, was a collector. He collected loads and loads and loads of stuff. He loved collecting stuff. Um, he built up a collection that was just too big for their house, and he got that time-honoured response, either the collection goes or I do. And so the collection went, um, and it went here. It went to a, a custom-built 
building for the museum collections so that it could be made available to the public. Um, and that's that's basically what, what Horniman did. Frederick Horniman provided a museum, he provided all the specimens to populate that museum for the public. Um, and it's been a free museum, open to the public, since 1904. This is, uh, there's quite a few of these Victorian gentlemen who uh, went around collecting strange objects. You, of course, think of uh, Mr Welcome uh, and plenty of others. What, what was it about the Victorians that liked to do that? They didn't have TVs. <laughs> it's a simple solution, really. Uh, basically, you're talking here about intelligent, educated people um, with money, lots of money. You know, the Industrial Revolution worked very well for quite a few, well, for, for a fairly small number of people, but it worked incredibly well for them. Um, incredibly wealthy people, and wanting to be able to put something back into the world. So they often built up these huge collections and then used that as a way of exploring an area that they found interesting. So with Henry Wellcome, it was exploring um, medical uh, medicine as a way of understanding culture and, and kind of human progress, as it were. Uh, with Horniman, it was more about exploring the world around him. So it started off very much with natural history, lots of insects and things like that. Um, but as, because he was a tea trader, it started becoming a lot more cultural as well so so anthropological objects started becoming part of his main service collecting jeff marshall it seems to me that what you and paolo have in common is an idea for the aesthetic and presenting things you you do video work of course what's your first impression of this place uh, it, it's one of those places where I think I think Pella said when we came in, and he had a very small amount of the collection actually on display. So it's it's easily one of those places where you think you could come back and see you could come back a second time and see something that you didn't see the first time. And I do like those places where you know you don't get bored of them. You can constantly go back and be like, oh, I didn't see that, and just you know, and and you learn and you just sort of take on board information and and new facts and that's always a great thing do you, t- do you say it was free to get in as well i didn't yeah, know that it was free yeah it's free well why would you not come here when it's free it's that simple come here <laughs> now are you a frequenter of museums no i do my girlfriend works in the museum industry and i mentioned i was coming to the horn and she was like oh we should go and i, I don't know why we haven't been uh, sooner so we have we have been we were at the just randomly at the weekend we went to the london museum saw a film there had a lot around so you know i do i love london that's why i'm on this podcast isn't it because i love london so yes i do uh, I, do, I do i don't not frequent museums but, yeah. <laughs> what an endorsement <laughs> well it's just that I, I feel i should probably do them more than I do, but I have to also eat and, and live and earn money. But I just, you know, I wish there was more time to, 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 to learn about our history and culture and, and, and society. I just wanted to say that the reason why the Victorians were brilliant, when, just now, is because they didn't have Twitter and Facebook to distract them. <laughs> and I honestly believe this is a true... I was down the pub the other night with my friend. Is that, is that I think that once there'll be a, a, there might be a phase in, in about 20 or 30 years' time where... You know the children that are growing up now that have been brought up with the internet don't get distracted by that, and there might just be like a whole generation where they actually use the internet for something useful rather than just idling their time away. That's what I believe is going to happen. That's very fanciful thinking, isn't it? <laughs> nice idea. <laughs> are you suggesting there's going to be a great uh, cultural gulf then because of these technological innovations? I think we're in a, seriously we're in a phase where 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 you know things go in revolutions, don't they? And we're in a phase now where there's a lot of technical innovation. And there might actually come a time, you know, later in in this century where where all the technical innovations come to a stop and we're just in a phase of utilising them properly and efficiently. And we may have another great sort of time when we go, right, chaps, we've got nothing to distract us, so let's get on and and create something or 
or build something rather than be in a phase of learning and, and, and discovery, which I feel that we are in at the moment. Does that make sense? Or does it sound like I'm talking rubbish? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested because both of you are prolific tweeters. Uh, we get a, a tweet every week from you, Paolo, with a, an article. You're usually holding up a bit of a bone or horn or something and say, right, I challenge you to, to figure out what this object is. Jeff, you're often on Twitter. In fact, you very inadvisedly tweeted that you had no emails in your inbox just recently and promptly received lots of emails from people saying there's one for you the first one was from you saying hello and i was like thanks thanks very much i know if you you will brag (laughs) but you you see what i mean i'm i'm a party to my own thing that i just said i'm I'm a victim of my own i i I think i think oh i have no emails i'll tweet about that why do we do that it's a it's a silly thing why aren't i actually going away and being more constructive with my day yes collecting objects absolutely I think it's a nice idea um, that we will kind of learn to deal with the technology that we have and actually start applying it more sensibly. And I think that's you know, something which we will do. But the trouble is that we will also come up with new things all the time. I don't think that it's a case that we will have this sudden expansion now and, and then it will stop. I think every new technological innovation leads to more technological innovation um, because you're able to do so much more in the future. So I think it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> What about, as somebody in your line of work, Paolo, the whole Twitter thing seems to have gone hand-in-hand, whether there's a causal link or not, I don't know, but hand-in-hand with an inability to pay attention to anything for more than about three seconds. And, of course, museums traditionally are places where you have to engage with the object, do a little bit of reading, soak it in. And uh, we've seen strategies from various museums, kind of hands-on type stuff, which I know you've got a bit of here as well. But how much of a problem is it? capturing and keeping the attention of people as they visit with twitter i find that actually it's incredibly valuable for in-depth information sharing because normally when i get a tweet from someone i follow a lot of people um there are often links to really interesting articles scientific papers or um something which is is looking at a a news article or, or whatever so actually i find that those short little snippets of information lead on to a much deeper level of of kind of refined research but it's a way of pre-refining my research to a certain extent because if someone's sharing it and it's someone who I know shares interesting stuff it means that it's already gone through a selection criteria for me so in some ways it means that you can actually focus much better on a particular subject or topic that you're interested in and I find with museums or with any other um, kind of object-based you know experience the objects themselves are the fascinating things. So you know, the museum as a whole is effectively a big... It's almost like a big Twitter stream. It's loads and loads of little kind of snippets of information. Every object could be viewed as a little snippet of information. But as soon as you actually stop and look at one, you can start seeing more and more detail. You can start understanding things deeper and you know, with, with much better quality of, of understanding. So tweets as gateways, artefacts as gateways. Yeah, it's very interesting seeing these different ways of, of using Twitter. One new way which seems to be gaining momentum is to be tweeting historical events. We had the fire at the Houses of Parliament tweeted in real time uh, not so long ago. And we've had a new one in uh, the last week, in fact, Jeff. We do indeed. Uh I, I'm quite old, but I'm not old enough uh, to remember the great smog of London tweeted by Climate Action, with a two in the word action, um, because it was back back on Wednesday, a couple of days ago, uh, was the great smog uh, of London, which lasted from the 5th to the 9th of December, back in 1952. Uh, you know, you couldn't see more than an, an arm's length in front of you, and it killed over 10,000 people. Which yeah, I was astonished by that. 10,000 people just to die. If that was to happen, that would be like a major earthquake-style disaster in London back in the 50s. I, that's I how many died. Apparently 10,000 people made ill. I don't think okay, they all died. Well, 
Okay, the, the quote is that over, up to 12,000 are thought to have, to have died, but no, but up to 100,000 were made ill, which is an incredible number. In the morning, they started at 7 o'clock and they, and they, uh, they live-tweeted with the hashtag Great Smog. Um, uh, as the voice of an ordinary Londoner talking about you know the the, the atrocious weather conditions uh, in in that day, there were four hundred tweets that came out, and you could sort of follow the action. It was great. I wonder which events would be uh, suitable material. Perhaps those within our memory would be suitable material for this sort of live tweeting thing in the future. There was this, so I remember back at the beginning of the Olympics, my Twitter feed was exclusively all about the opening ceremony. And, and that's what it was and, and there was humour and witty insight and also a lot of smart ob- observations and I remember thinking you know I follow what two three hundred people I remember thinking everybody that I follow on Twitter tonight is just talking about the Olympics opening ceremony even for people that weren't in London and that's an amazing thing you suddenly felt like it did it's so cheesy and cliche but it did bring the world together because everybody was looking at the same thing at the same time that was amazing talking of people looking at the same thing at the same time it sounds as though a floodgate has opened and we can hear a clamor of particularly school children i think in the background there what a lovely sound that is yes indeed we, we do have quite a lot of noise from uh, from the kids coming to the gallery and it's it's sometimes it's fantastic because they sound really enthusiastic um other times it's not quite so good because it's very very small kids who come in and just scream um and it echoes beautifully in there so i think they like it for that but it's it's fantastic when you actually get enthusiastic voices coming floating up into your office space it's it's nice we should say something as well the thing that astonished me when you told me paolo was that the objects on display currently form just one percent you mentioned it yourself jeff just one percent of the total collection and you're going through a sort of a process of uh, re re-cataloguing these articles well it's, it's it's reviewing what we have in store really and um, what we've got we've probably got in just if this is just for natural history and um, we've got about two and a half thousand objects on display in the kind of gallery spaces out here um, we've got about a quarter of a million objects in total so we have vast quantities of material obviously we can't show it all some of it's not really suitable for showing because it's you know it doesn't look very exciting some of it's um very very scientifically important so we have type specimens which um a type specimen is basically when someone describes a new species they they take a sample of that species so that other scientists can look at it and actually check to make sure whether something that they've found is the same species it's basically how we have an understanding of what life there is on the planet that's what museums hold on to that's kind of what we do um a large part of what we do it's not all we do um yeah, you've got a gift shop as well yeah absolutely um but th- that, that those kind of scientific collections we probably wouldn't want to put on display because they are getting used for research and because they're irreplaceable so yeah, they're kind of a bit too important to put out in a public space where they can be stolen damaged or um even just because they can't be looked after quite as well as um, they would be in storage you guys are all generalists here so you're, you're bringing in uh, what bringing in specialists absolutely yeah so um like i said we have a quarter of a million objects and there are two members of permanent staff here in natural history so you can imagine that we need to know a lot about a lot of different things unfortunately that means you can't get the depth of knowledge that sometimes you need to really make a good assessment of, of the importance of an object so um what we're doing as part of this project it's only going on for a year we're calling it bio blitz and uh, it's it should be good fun and, and it's actually we've got a, a twitter stream on it um called uh, Horniman Reviews. Um, so we're getting external experts to come in and um, 
look at parts of the collection so we'll go through say okay all the birds um, these are all the birds that we have um, you know we've got a pretty good understanding about some of them but we don't know everything about all of them so let's try to get some experts in um, who, who are specialised just in birds and who can bring that extra level of knowledge um, to the table and say well okay this, this specimen is particularly important because of this or this collector who collected this specimen is very important because of this um, things that we might not know just off the top of our heads that we'd have to do a lot of research um, to understand better and obviously we don't have the time to do that sort of level, level of research for a quarter of a million objects but the whole thing is uh, it's been funded by the Esme Fairburn um, which is uh, a, a funding pot which comes through the Museums Association and so that's a very very handy resource for us well, you've brought us to the issue of funding, and in fact, that's uh, a neat link into the story of the consultation that's been going on, particularly in North London, North West London. And this, I think, affects you directly, doesn't it, Jeff? Um, amazingly so. I, I live in what I shall refer to uh, in a moment as the black spot, and I wasn't aware of this until I was literally handed a leaflet. Uh, it was walking down Ealing Broadway, I live in Ealing, Acton, and uh, a few months ago, and it was about the local A&E department being closed in Ealing and I thought oh that's that's a shame and I remember thinking but I know that there's Central Middlesex Hospital which is up towards um in the Park Royal area I remember thinking that's okay uh if I have if I break my leg I can hop on the bus to that literally hop on the bus I should point out the last time I went to my Ealing A&E because I sliced my hand open I did get on the bus (laughs) to go there because I don't have a car and so I had this like towel wrapped around my hand bleeding as I got on and um but then it was only it came to light and this I think is the very key point is that it's I think people are saying that um I didn't realize that five A&E departments in the west and northwest area of London um I can tell you if you don't know it's not just Ealing so Ealing Hammersmith which actually is sort of near White City, Charing Cross, which is nowhere near Charing Cross, <laughs> Central Mid- uh, Middlesex Hospital. It's basically they're, they're whittling down nine any uh, departments to just five, so we're losing four. But it means that there's I've got this map up here, and there's a map on the London's website, that if you live in sort of the West 3, West 4, West 5 area, there's like this black hole where there's just nothing, and you'd have to travel a lot further to go and get some A&E attention. And my simple thing is is i i i read all the news articles and i agree there was a consultation and some people are saying that some people weren't consulted enough and they've done it just to get the answer they want and i'm not against change but surely the simple thing would be to do would be to have a compromise somewhere between what's been proposed and what there is now so that the change is a slow one why not just say whittle them down to two you know not at least at least retain one any department in that black spot and then review it again in a year's time and that to me is the sensible answer and I don't like it when people go it must be this at one extreme and the other party go no it must be this at the other extreme and, and nobody's prepared to meet in the middle why can't people meet in the middle am I, am I being naive there? <laughs> no I, I mean, that's, that's to be honest that's a very very common problem this whole inability to compromise um, but at the end of the day when we're talking about hospitals I mean we're having actually a similar problem with the Lewisham A&E um, the real issue is that you're talking about people's lives um, when you're talking about closing an A&E department, you're talking about when you have a heart attack. And let's face it, a lot of us will end up having heart attacks. Another minute away in an ambulance is the difference between life and death. And when you've got a massive black spot or just just a, a paucity of A&E departments which are able to take you... Because don't forget, people are always in A&E departments that never empty. As soon as you close down four... All of those people that were going to the A&E department, they can't just not go. 
they're going to have to go somewhere. So the, um, the amount of resources that are going to have to be redirected to those other departments, the amount of re- I mean, just for, in terms of space in some instances, it's a vast, vast change in the way in which those other hospitals are going to be able to function. It's worth saying as well that there's a texture to that problem because the A&E departments are associated with particular hospitals and those individual hospitals have specialisms and so when you're a a trained ambulance driver or for example the the air ambulance and you know that a patient's got a particular condition that needs to be treated quickly then you know which A&E to go to so I I wonder how much that's been factored in. All A&E departments are not the same. They're not so I'm just I'm going to go off on a slight tangent and just because I also just read read some notes there is that, is that actually some of them are not sure the actual figures they're not completely losing the A&E but they're going to be reduced down to what they call these minor injuries units so it, so they can't deal with a broken leg but they can deal with like a nasty gash on your finger and please don't laugh at me over such a simple thing but I had a train analogy on this <laughs> and I likened it to the fact that when when the government want to close like a, a, a train line or a branch line, they can't just close it. They whittle it down to like one train a week, which is their legal requirement or something. And then a year later, they're able to go, oh, look, no one's using it. That's our justification for closing it. Mm. And you can't help but wonder that something same is going to happen here, that they're going to whittle Ealing A&E down to just like two minor injuries. And then they'll go, oh, look, hardly anyone's going there. Well, of course not, because you, you've closed the main reason for going there. And then they'll be able to go, well, let's close it all together. And I think that there's a little bit of, that's a little bit, what's the word, Sub, subterfuge going on there. It's, it's, a, it's a nasty way of getting what they want in a very in a very cynical fashion. That's what I worry about. Let's change the subject abruptly to getting what you want in an entirely <laughs> honest way. Uh, well, there's a new shop over, uh, well, it's on, it's on the river, isn't it? I love this. Let's be cheerful. So I feel like I've been very cynical and mean. And so I want to bring some cheer to the podcast. And you can hear the love in my voice. This is brilliant. And not just because it's a bus. There is a bus-based honesty shop in St. Catherine Docks and the Londoners article rather amusingly pointed out that it might not work in Peckham but it it works in the rather swanky St. Catherine Dock and basically um, it's a pop-up based shop uh, that's in a bus you literally get on a bus you you can go down there they sell knitted clothing gardening tools kitchenware but basically um, there's no there's no checkout there's nobody to take your money things are priced but on your way out, uh, your, 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 uh, it's hoped that you're genteel enough, as it says, um, to put the money in an honesty envelope and post it into the letterbox without being asked. So they're expecting you to buy stuff without being, you know, actually asked for the money. It's up to you. I think it's great. I'm, I'm going to go down at the weekend and, and check it out. I have <laughs> seen the speed with which an armchair can be deposited on a pavement. Uh, and the, the gap between that and a guy with a van who clearly doesn't live in the area but just patrols looking for armchairs, snatches it up off the street, tells me that there are people who are just waiting for an opportunity like this. Well, I, I think it'll work in certain areas of London, and it will sound terribly snob, snobby, and as they say, it might not work in Peckham, and it probably does work in St. Catherine. So, so if it is a success, and it would be great, wouldn't it, to see some figures as to how much money, if, if any, they're actually losing, then I'm sure the bus can, can drive to other affluent parts of, 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 of town. Well, now, hold on. We've, we've got to challenge this. So what are we saying? Affluent people are honest, or, or you can't trust South Londoners, or what? I mean, this, is, this is outrageous. <laughs> I'd say that affluent people are probably less bothered about spending money. Although, actually, that's probably a lie as well. That's probably not true. <laughs> I think everyone's bothered about spending money. Just guess whether you've got it in the first place. Fundamentally, is this going to work? I don't know. As a scientist, I'd say we have to find out. I would say that in the, and, and again, I hate to use this phrase, but in the current economic climate, I, 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 would, I, would, I would be surprised if it would work more than it did, say, 10 years ago. But who, who knows? You know, 
stranger things have happened. Interesting, wouldn't it, to see what sort of stuff is getting nicked, whether the profile of things that get pinched has changed because of the economic situation. We do. We, I actually want to see some stats. Somebody, I don't know who's in charge of this, but I would love to see stats of how much has, has been invested, how much they've made, what's being stolen. Is it, is it worthwhile? I would, love to, I would love a full-up story in this in six months' time with, with raw statistics. We've got a lovely stat story to do with crimes in just a second. We'll be finding out how monks figure in the statistics. First, though, I've got to ask you whether you'd like an audio book. Because if you would, you can have one for free. Oh, yes, and it's on audible.co.uk, courtesy of Londonist. You can select a free digital audiobook from 60,000 titles offered by Audible. All you need to do is sign up for a 30-day free trial of the Audible service. And after that, I think it's uh, somewhere between about four and five quid, something along those lines, per month, and you can download an audiobook every month for that. Um, And this is great, actually, because you can uh, put them on your iPhone or iPad or your MP3 player. You can burn it to a CD. This is your book to keep, and the, the, the free one as well for the trial period. You get to keep that forever, whether you stay with Audible or not. And all you need to do to get that is just go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. And I've got to say, that might not be a bad uh, Christmas present for someone as well. Monks, <laughs> Paolo Viscardi. Yeah, it's um, it's a slightly odd article, <laughs> really. It's uh, about Section 5, um, which is a... a bit of law which protects you against uh, rowdy or um, kind of uncouth behaviour, which I think uh, basically means that if someone insults you or if they're being very noisy or whatever, um, you can call the police on them. Uh, and so there's uh, the, the Metropolitan Police um, released a list of people who are victims of uh, Section 5 public order offences uh, since 2003. Um, and it's, it's an interesting bunch of people, actually. So there, there are lots of about 2,000 school children um, and 1,638 students were victims. Um, it's quite odd because you tend to think of those as being the likely guilty parties. So. Yeah, particularly those from Peckham. Uh, well, yes. I, 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 I kind of like Peckham, so uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that's fair. But at the same time, yeah, absolutely. You, you, you wouldn't get any pop-up buses there, though, would you, really? In no, but you, you do get some good pop-up bars there. There's, uh, there's that... What's the name of it? I can never remember the name. Oh, on, on top of the car park. On top of the car park, yeah. What's it called again? Is it Frank's or Frank's, something? Frank's, that's it. Frank's, yeah. It's probably closed now because it's winter, but yeah. Fantastic. The views from up there are just incredible. Well, in, in fact, uh, if, it, if it's drunken disorderly behaviour, I don't know if we should be bringing that into the same article here. Uh, we, we've got lots of... I mean, this is disgraceful, actually. 5,000 police employees... 600 employees of the ambulance service, I have to say, sad, but you, you wouldn't be entirely surprised uh, to, to hear that they're encountering drunken disorderly type uh, behaviour. But this is disgraceful. 22 fire service staff were targeted by uh, people in, in that frame of mind. And then we get on to the, the really weird, uh, <laughs> the weird stuff. And you have to kind of concoct a mental picture as to how these things happen. Well, uh, judges, judges, you can totally understand. Um, you can understand why they might get a bit of uh, abuse. In fact, I'm surprised there's so few judges. Astronomers, again, I can imagine if you're traipsing around in the middle of the night um, with, a, with a big telescope, you might get a little bit of abuse thrown at you by a drunkard. Oi, you're looking at my planet. Yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, are you a pervert? You know, there's houses over there. You've got a telescope. looks a bit dodgy, you know. Oh, that was well thought through. There you go. You can can come up with good reasons. That's a nice view you've got from your window. Yeah, you you should see the view out the other side. Well, the tower block over there. No, the... uh, With all the bedrooms on there. If you... 
<clears throat> no, no. Um, okay, where were we? There, there's a, a monk and nuns, three nuns apparently. Um, it says they, they claimed they were a monk and nuns. I don't think there was any proof that they were a monk and nuns. Why do we disbelieve that they were a monk and nuns? I have absolutely no idea. I'm sure they probably were. We, we haven't doubted the astronomer in the same way. Well, I think we kind of cu- casted some potential aspersions on the astronomer's character there with the uh, telescope. I see, yes. Yes, what else have we got? Butchers, butchers and bakers. I'm surprised that actually there are only nine butchers and uh, 12 bakers. Bakers. I, I would have thought there'd be more butchers because some people do have a, have a, a very strong dislike for people who eat meat and provide it as a uh, as a source of sustenance. So um, I'm surprised there aren't more kind of right on vegan activists who are shouting abuse at, at butchers. I, 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 I when I when I was at college, I knew a guy who. Um, who actually was put in prison for a while for setting fire to a butcher's shop because he was so anti. So um, anyway, it's a barbecue, surely. Well, <laughs> good call. Yeah, I kind of wish I'd been there now. Um, but yeah, so th- there are some people out there who are a little bit unhinged when it comes to butchers. See, the thing is, I, I would have thought that the number would be higher for uh, bakers because uh, if you're thinking about who to target, you've got one guy with a baking tray or one guy with a cleaver. Just, just while we're talking about butcher shop, this is completely <laughs> tangential. But um, we just, just uh, there are these little pop-up um, shops around Forest Hill, which are, and, and Sydenham, which have been going on recently. From uh, they got a Portus Award, uh, and a butcher suddenly materialised in Forest Hill the other day. I was, I was taken aback, and it's, it's great. You know, it's exactly the kind of thing which you need coming on the run up to Christmas. A, a butcher's suddenly popping up out of nowhere. Fantastic. So, no abuse for them, I don't think. Oh, and, and apparently. Um, Chimney sweeps um, get abused. That's uh, two, two, two chimney sweeps. <laughs> I didn't know there even were two is chimney sweeps. Is that still a profession? Is that, is that still people? I believe so. Wow, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I, on the way up here, by the way, there's a, an estate agent's, or what looks like an estate agent's, and you know around this time of year, businesses try to tie their business in with Christmas in some awkward way, and you can't really tie an estate agency in with Christmas in any convenient fashion. So they, they've tried to do that, but then they backed off from Christmas. I think they've got scared that they're being a, a little bit religion-specific or something like that. So they've got a notice outside their shop that says, get your house evaluated in appreciation of the season, which is about as weird an advert as it gets. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. <laughs> That doesn't mean anything. How can you link estate agents to... Let's have actually got Santa's Grotto for sale. Then, you know, that, why, why, that's, that's, that, that is desperate measures, isn't it? The only link I can see between estate agents and Christmas is um, the, the, there are some houses, actually, uh, around here built by Google Christmas. They're called the Christmas Houses. And there's actually um, a flat for sale in a Christmas house in Forest Hill, which uh, my wife and I actually had a look at the advert for um, just the other day. So there is a small link there, but it's pretty minimal. Oh, they should have just gone for it and said, buy a Christmas house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the skyline of London since we're on uh, buildings and architecture and that sort of stuff. Well, sounds good to me. Yeah, we got we got a great view. Just just to, again, yeah, I, I, we're here at the Horniman. I have to say, the view from um, the, the gardens, the pavilion area in our gardens, is just phenomenal. Uh, I, I didn't realise how good it was until uh, I went up there on a nice clear day, and you can see London skyline with just. It's fab- absolutely fantastic. Well, well worth a well worth a look, I would say. And it's free, so you know you can't can't really go far wrong with that. Well, you're in an ideal position then, presumably, to comment on these beefs that the skyline is being messed up, roundly screwed. Yeah, I don't know how you screw up a skyline, to be honest. Well, what they say, very clear criticism here from Rowan Moore, architecture critic of the Observer newspaper. He is saying that they're spreading the big buildings out too widely. He wants them clustered in a little group 
and they're not being clustered at all. They're being spread all over. They're ill-advised, undistinguished. He's not happy. Well, I personally would like to see it all as fields and, and forests because I like fields and forests. So we can never get quite what we want on our uh, on our skyline. I, I I just think it's a bit silly. Um, you know, London's a big organic place. You have developments going on all over the shop different areas of london change their usage different areas of london have different kind of priorities at different times um you you get clusters of buildings of of a different kind of style at different times because that's the area where you would be building those sorts of buildings at a particular given point in history it it's all about evolution it's about how the skyline evolves and at the moment there might be these big kind of skyscrapers going up in various different patches and and whatever else that don't seem cohesive but because of the way in which kind of cities develop and and economics works there will be more places springing up around them well assuming there's ever any money again but there will be more places springing up around and and because of you know simply the fact that those will be the desirable areas to do it they'll continue to do that i think as long as you can access the places that are clogging up the the skyline I'll explain that comment logically now. Um, then it's okay. For example, like, am I right in thinking that to go up the Shard right now, it costs quite a few quid, right? You can't just go there for free. Whereas, for example, I mentioned earlier, I was at the Museum of London at the weekend, and I, we came out, we walked down to St. Paul's Station along Cheapside, and then suddenly I turned to my girlfriend, and I went, oh, yes, let me show you something. And I don't want to plug it, but... but, but there's, yeah, yeah, no, to, where does this story go? <laughs> but there's a, I won't mention the shopping centre, but there's a brand new shopping centre right next to St Paul's Cathedral. And, uh, and another uh, London uh, blogger that a few months ago showed me this. And if you go into sort of where the mall is, and there's a lift that takes you to the first and second floor, there's like a secret, he says in quotes, a button, that takes you up to the seventh floor, because there's no third, fourth, fifth, sixth floor. And there's a balcony on top, and you get out, and you and it takes you right next to... You know the domed part of St Paul's Cathedral, and an amazing view. And we went there at four o'clock, just as it was getting dusk. And you literally step out of the lift, and you and my girlfriend went, "Wow!" And it's just kind of, and it's this beautiful scene. So I, that's that's the Londonist out loud hot tip for the week is to go up to the seventh floor in the shopping centre next to St Paul's and just look at the view. It's stunning. If you hadn't already earned your place on the show, <laughs> by golly, you would have just done so with that. You can you can uh, stage your own affair to remember scene. <laughs> Right next to St Paul's, thanks to Jeff Marshall. Well, what about the uh, the architecture underground, though? Uh, we, there's some new uh, stations yes. that have popped up, particularly in the east of town. I love how you seamlessly link things together. You, it's, it's a, it's a, it's you, your brain just links stuff together. It's fantastic. Um, you want to talk about uh, the plans for transport in London over the next ten years, don't you? And the fact that fares are going up yet again. Am I correct? By Jove, that's a good idea. <laughs> Uh, TfL did this great thing this week, which they always do. They always, in my mind, they repackaged news which has already been used, <laughs> and they go, "Look, here's all these amazing things that we're doing." And they sort of and they uh, covered up the fact that uh, there was a news story out that um, fares are going to rise uh, by more than inflation every year for the next ten years by saying, "But look, all the things that we're doing," and then announced a whole bunch of things that they already told us we were doing such as the new Victoria Line ticket halls which are opening and and Crossrail and Tottenham Court Road and so I remember thinking looking at their press release thinking this is great but there was actually nothing new on there yet in fact the only one thing which was a bit of new information was the fact that something wasn't happening and that's the fact that the tramlink extension to Crystal Palace has has, has, they're saying that it's definitely not happening yet so there's nothing actually new you won there, so... Um, um, uh, except for the fair rises. Except for the fair rises, which, which again... And I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here, but this is relevant. And I saw this just uh, earlier this week on Tuesday. I was in the new King's Cross ticket hall, because being a geek, I went out to check out the new King's Cross station. 
and um, and I had to run back home, so I didn't get a chance to read the poster properly. But there was a poster up saying, you know, I think targeted at tourists, mainly saying, "Are you done with your Oyster card? Pop it in here into this charity box." And we all know because there have been stories before that TFL have a lot of redundant money sitting on Oyster cards. People come along, they put ten pounds in their card, and at the end of their trip, they leave London, and there's still like two pound fifty or three pound on there unspent. And if you add all this up. It's like millions of pounds worth of fe- of money that's been paid that's sort of floating in the system doing nothing. Uh, reminds me of Superman 3 where uh, Brewster got all the spare pennies, didn't he? All, all the cents and, and he credited himself with all these millions. And from what I could gather, they were saying, donate your Oyster card and we'll give the money to charity, which of course is a great thing. No one's knocking charities. But I bet if you polled Londoners and said, what would you like to do with all the spare millions floating around? They'd go, knock it off fairs for everybody so that the fairs don't rise next year and that I think would be a smarter idea just had to get that off my chest <laughs> well I, ne- I nearly agree with that line of thinking but if these are uh, people who are visiting the uh, the capital and leaving their money behind I don't mind it I think you should go to a charity I, I don't quite see I don't quite see why we should get a couple of quid off my opinion on that is that a lot of the tourists who come to the country and, and you, you know come into London, buy an Oyster card, will come round and they'll go to all of the museums and they'll have a lovely time and it'll be fantastic. Great. Any other country you go to, you pay to go to their museums. We have free museums. We are bringing tourists into the country for museums. They are spending their money. It's going into the economy. It's great. That's what we want. Um, And they're getting a good experience at the end of it. Fantastic. As far as I'm concerned... The unpaid money on their Oyster card can be viewed as money that they've basically not had to pay for going to the museum. Let's chuck it back into the system. I quite like the idea of knocking it off Oyster cards because, quite frankly, everyone I know who works in the museum has to travel in London. Um, if you can knock it off fares, I think you should. Well, that didn't go where I was expecting it to go. I thought you were going to angle for the, the cash to get another walrus. <laughs> well, well, I will go back to what I said earlier. Let's have a fair compromise. Let's not have one extreme or another. Let's split the money and let's give 50% to museums or galleries or something like that and then 50% back to the fair paying passenger there you go everybody's happy and I would say a lot of museums and galleries are charities so um, you know, they seem like good charities to give the money to if you are going to give the money to charity well here's, a, here's another good charity uh, while we're in charity mood the choir with no name is a longtime friend of Londonist Out Loud as you know they've got a gig coming up very very soon at the Union Chapel they'd love you to come along I will pass over to Marie Benton from the choir with no name Hello, it's Marie from The Choir With No Name. The Choir With No Name runs choirs for people who've experienced homelessness. We've got three at the moment, one in North London, one in South London and one in Birmingham. So this Tuesday, the 11th of December, we are going to be at the Union Chapel in Islington for our fantastic once a year Christmas gig. Um, There's going to be three choir with no names uh, and also a support act called the City Shanty Band. Have to be careful how you say it, who are a, um, they sing sea shanties, but about living in the city and they're all from Hackney and they're quite funny. At our gig on the 11th of December, we've got lots of silly Christmas songs basically as we do every year there's going to be um, a very stupid arrangement of last Christmas Uh, there's also some more kind of contemplative stuff like we've got a a Flaming Lips Christmas song that's going down very well in rehearsal and lots and lots of audience sing-along stuff and generally a brilliant time Um, but yes come it's 12 quid and it's going to be brilliant doors at seven you can find out more from www.choirwithnoname.org there we go. Yes, do go onto the Choir With No Names website, uh, or if you'd like to reserve tickets, and particularly if you are working with people who are 
homeless. Emma at choirwithnoname.org is the email address you'll need. So that's Tuesday 11th of December at the Union Chapel in Islington. Well, Paolo Viscardi and Jeff Marshall, we are up against the clock, as we always seem to be, and we haven't had a chance yet to talk about Boris and his adventures in India, which sounds like a novel for kids from the 50s or something, doesn't it? Uh, what's he been, just in a sentence, Jeff, what's he been up to over there? Acting in a very Boris-esque fashion, uh, he was on a six-day tour to promote business to try to say, hey, Indian business, come to London and we'll have our business links with you. Really, he's just giving, have I got news for you, you know, fodder to have have, <laughs> have the uh, the PIWS taken out of him. Um, why do you give me that? You know I'm not a Boris fan. You did this last time. You know I, I'm not a Boris fan. He just comes across as a buffoon and it's a great thing but i was just again i'll be cynical i was left thinking i'd rather he was back in london actually maybe doing london stuff aren't there other organizations that should be promoting businesses should, should is, is it actually economically wise to be trying to promote business with india which is half across the world why not do it within the existing european union which we have where businesses are a lot closer so it's not a bad thing i just thought it was a bit of a waste of time on his part well, he's more of a figurehead than... It's always difficult to know who the Lord Mayor of London is at any given point. Is it? He's a noted figure. He's recognised around the world. But I don't want Indians thinking that that's what all Londoners are like. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> I have to say, there's a bit of a whiff about it for me of the pre-prime ministerial oh, photograph no, no. campaign going on here, isn't it? Good oh, God, that's just a horrible just thought. Like... Horrible, horrible thought. I've got to say, a lot of times uh, people connected with museums are quite careful about how they tiptoe around <laughs> political subjects. Yeah, I, I, I should make it very clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of the one. <laughs> I, I, I am representing myself. I am, I've said it before and I'll say it again. What I say is what I think, not what my... Well, let, let's finish on uh, a subject with no controversy attached to it whatsoever. The expansion of Heathrow Airport. Yeah, the expansion of Heathrow Airport that Boris Johnson um, said a couple of weeks ago was never going to happen, which I think actually he's right about. Um, I, I think that's probably for the best. Uh, I can see arguments for the expansion of Heathrow being, you know, yes, it, it will potentially make well, it will make jobs and so on, but at the end of the day, Heathrow is not a good place for an airport. The it's it's a highly populated area around there. I used to live not far from there. I used to be kept awake by planes taking off all, all hours of day and night. Um, it is hideous. And so there's this uh, a report by um, John Rentoul, um in the Independent blogs saying that uh, the green case is, is an issue because obviously we can't cut carbon emissions by building bigger airports and putting in more runways. Um, and also the noise pollution then 30% of all the people in the European Union who are affected by noise uh, pollution actually live around Heathrow. That's an incredible statistic. All of the airports in the, in the European Union, that's a vast number of people, um, but most of them actually live around Heathrow because it's placed so close to, to basically housing and, and where people live. So really, um, it's not a good place for an airport. And you can kind of see why um, putting another runway in there is just a hideous idea for anyone who lives locally and there's you know we're talking there about 756,000 people so your, your preferred option well, you, I can't see you wanting to put an island in, in amongst all those nice birds in the estuary I think you'll be a standstill expansionist I yeah I think it's probably better to go out I mean th- I think the main thing is to develop the infrastructure to make sure that the links between the um, the slightly further out airports like Stansted and Luton um, are just better. Or even South End, which well, at first I thought was a preposterous idea, but I am, I'm now I'm warming to it as a, as a London airport. That's a, you know, it's, it's good. 
and anything which um, you know, so long as there's the investment to actually develop the infrastructure it means that what you have is a, a better place for other people to live as well you know it, it means that you're improving transport links into london because let's face it people from london will be getting on the planes from whatever airport you go from and they'll be coming to london and our facebook question of the week was where is the center of london and quite a few people have given the centre of London without any validation whatsoever. London Stone, says somebody. But why? We've no idea. Could be true. Might not be true. I, th- I, th- I think the uh, the best one without any validation um, is, is the simplest one, is, is just Me by Sash Cron. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. It's, it speaks of, speaks of a real personality there. Rick Wiltshire says the Thames. Uh, there are problems with that, Rick Wiltshire. <laughs> yeah, the fact that it doesn't just run through London, but Actually, doesn't it go into Wiltshire, which is funny enough, it runs all the way west into his surname. Um, my favourites, um, sticking with the me phase, uh, two people have gone with, geographically speaking, it's between Elephant and Castle and Lambeth North. And because that's where I was born, I'm going to go, yeah, it was born right by me, between Elephant and Castle and Lambeth North. So you are the centre of London. I am the centre of London. You are that privileged. But a lot of people just saying that it's actually, um, well, I was told it was centre point. Some people saying uh, Charing Cross, but a lot of people saying the Charles I statue in Trafalgar Square. Yes, we've actually got a picture of this sent in by Devon Simons, who says, guys, there is a plaque in Trafalgar Square and here are my feet next to it and we have indeed got a picture of feet and a plaque that says city of westminster on the site now occupied by the statue of king charles I was erected the original queen eleanor's cross a replica of which stands in front of charing cross station uh mileage is from london are measured from the site of the original cross let's pick out some uh, some other amusing ones just very quickly um, I think uh, Charing Cross we got here officially, but of course we all know it has to be 20, uh, 221B Baker Street, yes. which is uh, yes. nice. Sorry, I agree. That's a great one. That's a great one. Yes. Uh, someone here has just said um, Smith London Fields, because that's where all the paths meet, apparently. And Marble Arch as well, um, uh, <laughs> where he adds, where crossing roads without subways is only for brave men. I, I agree. Marble Arch would be good. One or two London-based businesses trying to get in on the uh, act here. Uh, London Literary Pub Crawl says the creative centre of London is obviously Fitzrovia and Soho. Well, if it's obvious, then it, it must be true. Treasure Trails, Greater London, says if I draw lines on my... Now, I like this. You'll, Paolo, you'll like this. It's a scientific approach. If I draw lines on my big laminated map of London from the northernmost point of Enfield to a place level with the southernmost tip of Bromley... Then, likewise, east-west, from the far points of Havering to Hillingdon, the intersection of the halfway points is just south of the new Kent Road next to Elephant and Castle. Yay! <laughs> right on we Jeff's a, head. We have a winner. <laughs> there we go. Right? So we're, so we're decided right now. We're saying, London is just saying, that's where it is, right? Right? Well, we'll take that out in the edit, I think. <laughs> Uh, thank you, everyone, who's uh, contributed for that. We always have a Facebook question. If you're interested in getting your response on the show, just look out for it on the Londonist Facebook page. We must come to a close, but not before I pit the mind of Paolo Viscardi against the mind of Jeff Marshall. We've got five questions. The week in London just passed in history. I, I forgot this as it was going to happen. I'm, I'm not going to be very good at this. No, I've, I've been revising. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you too. I've been too busy. I've been too busy. Uh, Okay, Monday, 26th of November, 1983. An armed robbery at the Brinks Mat Warehouse near Heathrow Airport becomes one of the largest heists in history as £26 million worth of what three things is stolen? (laughs) It's got to be diamonds, right? Diamonds is one of them. Yes! (laughs) 
Bullying. <laughs> bullying is another. Oh, um, it's going to be something obscure, Stocks. isn't it? Stocks. <laughs> what? Bonds. Bonds. Yeah. Not bonds. Um, uh, oh, traveller's checks. No, traveller's checks. Ah. Could you cash. even do that? <laughs> yes, Paolo's got it. It's cash. Cash, one, two, Paolo. Uh, choose. What? Why? Two, you got one. Oh. <laughs> we can't have controversy at this early stage. 66.6 to 33. Well, a third of a point, two thirds of a point, yeah. surely. Come on. Just <laughs> one week later. Tuesday, the 27th of November, but in which year the great storm of <laughs> reaches its destructive peak in London. The lengthy storm would cause extensive damage to the capital, blowing off part of the roof of Westminster Abbey, demolishing hundreds of chimneys and causing Queen Anne to shelter in a cellar at St. James's Palace. Can we both have a guess and the nearest year wins? Yes, you can. You, after you? No. <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> I'm going to say 1673. Are you now? I'm going to say... 1682. <laughs> Another point to Paolo. It's 1703. Wednesday, the 28th of November, 1999. A naked man bursts into a church in Thornton Heath, South London. What happens next? I apologise. <laughs> Sorry. Um... He gets shot. Uh, no, no, he... By a monk. It, he was. He was. Wasn't he? I, wasn't he? He'd been held hostage or something around the corner in a house, and, and this was his chance to escape. And he ran to the church. Well, there's lots of exciting, uh, violent stuff going on here. You're right with the violence, but wrong with all the answers so far. A hostage? Oh, I. I uh... Was there a sword involved? Yes, there was a sword involved. Oh, okay, I think I might vaguely recall this. Um, but I can't remember what it was. I remember a naked man and a sword. That's all I can remember. Well, that'll do us. He was wielding a samurai sword and indiscriminately attacking the congregation. Eleven people injured, some very seriously, before he was overpowered. The attacker would later be found not guilty of attempted murder and assault for reasons of insanity and detained at a psychiatric hospital. This is looking good for Paolo I'm at this stage. I'm losing 3-0, aren't I? Again, I lost last time. I'm rubbish. Why do, you, why do you have me on? Don't ever invite me back. Let me, let me just write that down. I didn't do any revision. I think I'm doing all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. That's making him feel good, isn't it? Thursday, the 29th of November, 1773, an attorney's clerk named Foster Powell sets off on a journey on foot from London to York and back. He would complete his round trip in how long? This has got to appeal to you, Jeff. <laughs> I suppose I should guess first, <laughs> shouldn't I? Um, I would... Uh, it's a round trip from here to York. Here to York on foot. On foot. Um, and is a clerk. Okay. Let me think. Can we just... I'm intrigued that, that that's going to affect your answer. Well, yeah, it's, it's not like he's a, a long-distance runner or something along those lines. Um, I would say that's, what, three? Uh, three days. At least two weeks. <laughs> Paolo's got it again. No! It's, uh, it's six days. What? There you go. <laughs> a round trip there and back. He walked to York in three days and back again. Yeah, you can easily do it. <laughs> <laughs> this was back before they had muddy paths, didn't they? Have you know nice urban. Jeff Marshall is not there. taking it well. No, I'm not. I'm. I pr- protest vehemently. Final question, <laughs> last chance. Friday, the thirtieth of November, nineteen thirty-six. What is destroyed by fire? Can we have the year again? Sorry, that's nineteen thirty-six. Something in London? It's a London show. <laughs> Just <sighs> something's destroyed by fire. God knows. Um, 
1936. Is it something which is so very famous? It's going to be something like the Albert Hall and they've rebuilt it. No, was it one of the Lord's Cricket Grounds? No, but you're, you're in the right sort of neck of the... You, you, you've got the right sort of idea. With, with cricket or, or, or with the Albert Hall? You just nodded, which? <laughs> yeah, one, one of those, yep, yep. I think you're going to get this point. Um, I'm going to go with the Albert Hall. So it's something uh, along those lines. I don't know. Some, it's it's going to be a famous London landmark that we never knew burnt down and was rebuilt. But it's just a case of which one it was. Well, it wasn't. I don't think it was rebuilt. There is a, a bit of South London that's named after it. And it was originally, I think, in Hyde Park and got moved to oh, where... Crystal Palace. Of course it was. I thought Crystal Palace ages ago and I'm never leaving, said anything. I'm leaving the building. <laughs> oh, God. Well, uh, if ever you want to, to <laughs> hurry Jeff Marshall out of a room, <laughs> and that's the way to do it. You got your backside pummeled there, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you make me look out to be incompetent and stupid, and I'm not. <laughs> it's all right, you're the centre of London. <laughs> well, um, as uh, as Jeff flicks his wounds and, uh, and Paolo... Paolo's giving me a, lo- a lovely pat on the back, that's really nice. Yes, I, s- I saw the knife go in uh, behind Paolo. Um, that's where we have to uh, tie off. Uh, we, should, we should give some of the details of websites and museums and <coughs> that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, In all honesty, the one thing that I didn't know is where on earth the Horniman Museum is, because Forest Hill is way, way off my map. So, I, I don't know, for us north, uh, north or east <laughs> Londoners, perhaps we need a bit of guidance to get here. Yeah, I mean, Forest Hill is actually, now, nowadays, nowadays with the existence of the overground, it's actually really easy to get to. Um, so, it's in Forest Hill, the Horniman's just up the hill in Forest Hill, um, and there's the overground which connects straight into uh, to forest hill it's really easy so you can get on there f- through from the uh, jubilee line from the um, hammersmith and city line from the district line from the dlr from the victoria line up the top end in uh, highbury and islington so there's loads of ways to actually get here you can connect up very easily and there's loads of buses and that's from the sunday here's here's, here's the generic transport plug the new overground link is coming in between uh, Clapham Junction and Surrey Keys, and you can you can change. That's opening in two days' time on Sunday. I'll be on one of the the, the first trains. I'm not going to plug my website, but I'm going to say yes. I love the Horniman. I love museums. I'm going to give a general plug for museums and say, Londoners, if you're stuck with something to do, but that's not Christmas shopping this weekend, go to a museum. There we go. What about your app that would possibly oh, well. <laughs> possibly help people to get here? I, I don't want to plug. Well, you can buy if you if you have one of those devices that starts with a small letter I. Uh, then uh, search for the phrase Station Space Master on your store and there's a handy guide that tells you everything about all transport tube overground things in London go and buy it it's amazing there we go stationmasterapp.com and the website for the Horniman the Horniman website is uh, horniman.ac.uk fantastic well look thanks for, for hosting us today and we're in amongst all the specimens in a, a lovely musty uh, back room which is a, a nice place to end the week thank you very much thank you thank you for having us And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Paolo Viscardi and Jeff Marshall. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. 